Welcome to Poured Over. I'm here today with the brilliant Sylvia Moreno-Garcia. Hi, thanks for having me. Best-selling author of Mexican Gothic, Gods of Jade and Shadow, Certain Dark Things, and Beautiful Ones. Her newest novel, His Velvet Was the Night, a riveting historical noir, Mexican Gothic. It exploded last summer. It was by far one of the most buzzed about books of the summer. And we even called it out as one of the best picks of the year. Our booksellers were obsessed with this gothic horror and could not stop talking about this book. There's now a series adaptation on the way. The paperback is coming out this summer. It's on Horror Talk. It's been nominated for a Bram Stoker Award, a Nebula Award. Can you talk a bit about what this experience has been like for you since it's come out, particularly taking place in a rather strange time, a rather strange year. It's my sixth novel, actually. I think sometimes people think it's my first novel because they haven't found me before, but it is my sixth novel. So a writer's career is not like an escalator. You are not constantly going up. It is more like a treadmill. And unlike other careers where you might start as an intern and then you become a junior associate and then you move into mid-level management, then you become director of something, writers are not like that. You can spend 20 years being a writer and still kind of be like in the mid-list trenches. So you never know when something is going to do well or when it's not going to do well. And at the same time, you live only by your latest hit because publishers look at BookScan to determine what they're going to buy for your next book. So it's a perilous kind of situation. And it's been very nice, but it's one of those things that you can't predict and you can't control in many ways. So this one did very well, but I had a noir that also came out last year from a much smaller publisher called Untamed Shore. And that one I think sold 700 copies. So I am used to not selling or selling very little or being in the mid list kind of floating around there. And to have something that did very nicely is exciting. But also I realized that it's not a promise for anything. And that's just the way it is of being a writer. I'm not being a downer. I'm just being a realist. So although I hope that my next novel will be received well and I will be able to do other projects, I take the long view. And I think that's the way it should be with writers. You cannot be worried about the micro. You have to think more about the macro. And you have to write for other reasons that are just acclaimed or money because neither one of those is a guarantee. You have to find other things that kind of make you happy. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's amazing. I I remember seeing this book, the cover was just so striking and kind of thinking to myself, everyone's going to pick this book up. Even if you're not interested in Gothic novels, the read was wonderful and everyone came to it and it's just really exciting. And I think that everything that comes your way with this book is well-deserved. A lot of your readers who have been with you, they sort of know you for your more speculative fiction, thinking of gods of Jane Shadow and certain dark things and beautiful ones. But even within that, you sort of jump around. You've explored Mexican mythology. You've got vampire lore, historical fantasy, gothic horror. You wrote a brilliant piece that I loved that we featured on our blog, The Girl in the Mansion, how gothic romances become domestic noirs. And you've spoken a bit about your new book, Velvet Was the Night, as a noir and not a thriller, and sort of those differences that lie there, what a book is, and and these sort of these genres and what they represent. So I, I'm going to ask, do you have a favorite genre to play in? No, I like to move around. I get bored with something, and then I go to something else. I have written a lot of speculative fiction, but I don't see the 
thick dividing line that tends to be kind of accepted in American publishing, differentiating the realist from the unrealist, just because being Latin American, I think that is much more fluid. So for me, it's not mm -hmm. such a big divide. And then in terms of genres, I really favor the noir over any other kind of crime subgenre. That's just a personal preference. But I have an interest in other things. I am interested in historical works. I'm interested in even more niche um, subject matters such as uh, weird fiction, which is like kind of like a subset of speculative fiction that straddles different lines. Sometimes it's horror and sometimes it's not. And so I like to float around different categories and not commit myself to one. The thing is, is that also when you're reading a lot of international fiction, fiction in translation, it doesn't necessarily fit neatly into one space or the other, very similar <laughs> to like Latin American yeah. fiction. So I was looking at this description for a Chinese science fiction novel, and it's from a literary imprint because it's being translated. And it did sound to me like it would be not a space opera, but still you know, some type of science fiction. And and so, you know, some people might call that literary, quote unquote, instead of calling it sci-fi yep. or, or that yeah. kind of work. So because of that, I tend not to be married to a certain category. And I like things that don't necessarily fit in one space or the other, because literature really does not fit in one space or the other easily for the most part. Uh, we do compartmentalize and classify things based on where it could sit on the bookshelf of a store because it makes for easy cataloging. But a classic work such as Frankenstein is a science fiction novel, is a classic work, call it literary or whatever you want to call that in terms of classic. It's also a horror novel and a gothic and a gothic work. And you could also even pull it aside and call it women's fiction. I mean, the category that we call women's fiction tends to be very amorphous and we tend to include only certain things such as quote unquote beach reads or family sagas. But in many ways, Frankenstein is also a family saga and it's by a woman and it has a lot of elements related to motherhood and parenthood and birth. And if you know about Mary Shelley, she was going through the death of a child at that time. So, you know, where mm -hmm. do we put Frankenstein in terms of a shelf is a good question to ask, but it's a good question to ask of also more than that work. I love the fact that you jump around. I'm not saying that people don't connect to stories, but I think people also connect to authors and they connect to their ways of storytelling and, and how they develop their characters. And I know that I've read this in reviews. They come to you for the storytelling, for the world building, the lush descriptions, those storylines. And I think the fact that you layer them in, like you said, whether it be typical or gothic horror or neo-noir, noir, the mythology, folklore, I think it just brings a nice experience. Like every time it's just like, <laughs> like you're able to sort of kind of explore the vastness of the bookshelf. Is there a genre? Is there some space that you haven't sort of dabbled in that you're kind of like, hmm, that might be interesting to explore that world building or that area? Um, I mean, there's many categories that I probably haven't touch yet and subgenres. I want to do probably a Western at some point, but I haven't found exactly what I want to do. So I've been thinking about mm -hmm. that for a while, but I haven't found my story yet. And I've also thought about doing a completely realist story. So what we would call literary, non-speculative, non-crime, non-you know, kind of genre related. But again, I haven't found exactly what I want to do within that space. I think I gasped a little when you said Western because I actually love that <laughs> genre. And I think 
there's so many elements to to a West End that I think people sort of are dipping into. I mean, everything from Westworld and whatnot and the popularity there. So it's an exciting space that I think people are taking those sort of Western foundations and building on and really making it their own. So I think that would be, well, I'll leave it up to you. But that, that sounds very exciting. I want to get into new book, Velvet Was the Night. It has been what I have been reading every night for the last few nights. So this is, we're saying, we're going to call it historical noir set against the dirty war in 1970s Mexico. So this is not speculative. There's no science fiction elements or fantasy elements. It's straight up slow burn noir. There is political unrest, complex characters that explore loneliness and languishing. I kind of got that a little bit in the beginning, sort of like trying to figure out where their space is, where they belong. So what was your inspiration for this book? A few years ago, I started thinking about how the 50th anniversary of the Corpus Christi massacre was was coming up. And this is the Uh event that opens a novel. So in 1971, what happened was that the Mexican government had been for several years persecuting student activists and leftist activists in Mexico. It started in 1960. In 1968, there had been one very big event where students had been marching peacefully and the government opened fire on them with soldiers and killed a bunch of them. And then in 1971, again, there was another peaceful march. And this time, the government had organized, after the 1968 situation, uh, squads of basically hired goons, paramilitary squads, so that the military wouldn't go in. It would be other people, thugs, hired thugs. And they were beating activists and all that before that. But on that, on a certain day in June, they sent... Uh, the Hawks, this group of this group of um, paramilitary goons, to uh, kill and beat the these student activists, and so this happened, and it was a bit of a turning point in in Mexican culture and consciousness. Yeah. It really opens the dirty war full force. Um, that means that the government. Um, you know, is is persecuting and torturing and grabbing people off the street, but also that guerrilla activity really intensifies in Mexico because student leaders and um, activists realize that there's no way to negotiate with the government. And so it's this very tense period. Um, but uh, so in 1971, this event happened and it's going to be 50 years this summer. And I was thinking about you know, like five years ago or so, I was thinking about how that anniversary was coming up. And I wanted to do something in that time period, because 1968 is pretty well known in Mexican consciousness. And I say that pretty well known between quotes, because the first time that that event has been included in Mexican textbooks was in 2018, I think, was the first time that government textbooks included the 1968 event. So before that, we just didn't mention it, you know, officially. But unofficially, everybody knew about 1968, and uh, there's every year there's kind of celebrations and things marking that uh, that anniversary. But 1971 is less well known as a point in in time, but it was also very important. So I wanted to do something with that kind of setting, and I was wanting to do a noir, and so it just it seemed to me that it was the perfect merging of the time period and the sort of work that I wanted to do in kind of like a big city situation, lots of politics. I had done a noir before on Tame Shore, but that was a small seaside setting, a rural village in Baja California, um, and the stakes were very different. So I wanted to do something that 
was in a large city, in a completely different context. The characters would have nothing in common with the other characters that I had used in Untamed Shore. So I just wanted to jump from one thing to the other. And so this was the, the perfect sort of background. And I did a dual point of view with Maite uh, being one of my characters who is a secretary and the other one, Elvis, being a hawk who is a member of this paramilitary organization. And that's how the book is structured with those contrasting point of views. I knew they were going to come together at some point, but yeah, in the beginning, when you're, when you're reading it you're, and they're so different. And I remember kind of just sitting there thinking to myself, okay, so they're, they're going to meet up. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they're going to meet up different people, different backgrounds, finding their way. I'm not going to leave any spoilers, but I thought it was just brilliantly done. It was just fantastic character work. And then that brings me to Elvis. Music plays a huge role throughout this book. And then I saw you even created a, Spotify playlist that highlights the music mentioned throughout the book, which is great. The whole playlist is wonderful and it really puts you in that perfect headspace. I wanted to see if you could speak a little bit about the music and the strong connections that your main protagonist had to the music. Why was it so important for you to add that element into the story? I didn't want to use music initially as an element that was played up because my first novel, Signal to Noise, was a lot about music in Mexico City in the yeah. 1980s. So I didn't want to go back to that. So I resisted it for a long time, but eventually it just became obvious that music was a really important element because the political repression that was happening in Mexico at the time mirrored the musical repression that was happening at the same time. And some of the conflicts that were occurring in musical spaces were the same um, conflicts that were occurring in political spaces. So there was a lot of a conflict about how we should handle, for example, rock and roll. Rock and roll is seen as a foreign genre, yep. something that is being imported by white people from the United States and therefore is noxious. And they're coming and they're not giving you only rock and roll, but they're giving you also like feminism and boys with long hair and all that kind of stuff. So it's it's this conflation of that and, and also this idea of it as an invasive force and rock bands trying to find their way. So you have in the beginning, everybody's singing just cover songs. And there's even bands yeah. that are singing in English, even though they're Mexican bands and they're Spanish-speaking bands are singing in, in English. They're imitating the American imports completely and the American and British imports. But then they start to kind of find their own identity and figure out who they are. So there's a lot of questions about identity in music and identity in politics that are occurring. And because of that, I thought that it had a place. And the exact moment when I actually gave up and decided to make music more of a plot element was that I was reading a memoir by a political prisoner, a man who, when he had been young, had been snatched off the streets and taken to a jail cell by, by the Mexican government. And he talks about music several times, but there's one moment when he talks about how they're torturing him and he remembers the music that's playing on the radio as he's being tortured. And I thought, yeah, I have to include music because it's impossible to slice it apart from the rest of, of the world. But it was my desire initially was not to repeat myself. And I thought this would be too repetitive, but it was such a big kind of metaphor and huge element that I, I couldn't cut out. I think music has a profound effect on us. You never forget a song, like you said, you know, that he was being tortured and, and that's going to be ingrained in his head, that music. So then I'm going to ask my next question. Continue with music. Are you an Elvis fan? 
I don't collect Elvis records. I am familiar with Elvis's music catalog. So no, I, I've never wanted to go see where he live or, uh, or anything like that. <laughs> I think I've seen one movie where he was in. It was like one of his Hawaii mm-hmm. movies. There's a fair number of Mexican Elvis impersonators, actually. Which really? is a, it's a very funny thing. Yeah, Mexican-American Elvis impersonators. And I, I always kind of found that sort of interesting. I've seen, I've seen them sometimes when they gather like on pictures on the internet and uh, that sort of culture. It's, I mean, there's also Asian like uh, Elvis impersonators in, in Japan. <laughs> and so it just seems to be this cultural figure that people find very interesting. People don't dress necessarily like Mick Jagger or other or David Bowie, but they do dress like Elvis and perform their songs and make their own versions of the songs. So I'm sure there's some stat out there somewhere about the most impersonated singers or the most impersonated artists. I, he's got to be up there. My mother loved Elvis. I have gone to Graceland. <laughs> I have swam in a guitar-shaped pool at a hotel across the street. And I did the whole shebang and it was fun because it seems that everyone has an Elvis that they love. Is it that early blue suede shoes, the Hawaiian Elvis? Is it the crazy Las Vegas studded jumpsuit Elvis? <laughs> he was such a figure and definitely left an impression. My day. She loves her music too, but she is infatuated with romance comics which I think your fans will be delighted to know are a very real thing that were extremely popular during this time in Mexico. So I read your piece that you did on tour, A Brief History of Mexican Horror Comics, and it was fascinating. You say you didn't really read the typical superhero comics growing up, but plenty of other stuff. So can you tell us what comics did you read? Did you love? And then did you read comics when you were a kid? Yeah, horror comic books and funny ones. But when I talk about funny ones, it's not the same as the funnies that would be considered in, I guess, in the United States, the Sunday funnies. Charlie Brown would be a funny comic book, I think, for American audiences. And the ones I read were not exactly in that vein. So Mafalda, which was a it was with children, it was kind of an equivalent to Charlie Brown, was also very political uh, because that was in South America. And so at the time, you get a lot of references to politics and nuclear war and all that kind of stuff going on while you're reading this funny comic book with children characters. And it is just funny on one level, but on the other level, it's highly political. And then I also read La Familia Burrón, which was about this family in Mexico City, but it's this low-class family. And they lived in the same low-class setting that I lived in a vecindad, which is like a tenement. I once saw an academic paper that said something like uh, a vecindad is, um, they didn't say a tenement, they said some other word. And I got really angry because I said, no, it's not that shit. It's a tenement. It's a different kind of shitty place, right? So I was very offended that, you know, I don't know, they, they call it a shanty town. I don't know, something like that. And I was like, no, it's not bad. It's a different kind of, you know, <laughs> I grew up in, in a vecindad, which is like a low class uh, type of housing. And they and the family in this story lives in that kind of environment. Yeah. And it's a very specific or physical environments so and they're low class and they're always having these adventures. Like the mother, it's a housewife and the husband who's um, a barber and the children. It's not like an I love Lucy situation. 
She's always yeah, doing yeah. these mad schemes to make money because she always <laughs> wants to have money. And she's always doing these mad schemes. And so it's like that kind of situation. But if Lucy was poor, like if she lived like in a shitty little dinghy, <laughs> you know, housing situation <laughs> and Ricky wasn't working at the Copa with the drums if he was, you know, a barber. Yeah. And so that so it was that I love because my grandfather read that and and so I love reading it because of him. And it was always very funny. But same thing, there are these mordant political elements in the comic book about poverty, about politics, about life in Mexico City and what it's like. So I really like those kinds of things. And then there were some comic, funny comic books that were more, a little bit more surrealist, I would say, and a little bit wackier, like Mortadelo y Filemon, which my grandfather also read. And those were two guys that were going on adventures and, and all that kind of stuff. I mean, my grandfather loved Tarzan. So Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, and he grew up also in a really shitty situation, was very, very poor. And he would grab the newspapers on the weekend when he was a child and they, you know, they didn't have anything to eat at all, almost. But they could get a hold of the newspapers because newspapers are cheap. Didn't matter if they hadn't eaten or if they were having financial problems. He would look at the newspaper and he would read that comic book strip that day and he would just escape to this other world where there were jungles and all this kind of stuff. And so a lot of the work that I did with Maite is based on, on that and also on my experiences of also escaping kind of into these other spaces. Aside from the funny ones, I like the scary ones. I like the horror ones. And those were more like Tales from the Crypt kind of stories. Every week you got a different story, one or two stories in these different kinds of things. And there was like a skeleton that attacked somebody or a ghost that pushed people down the stairs. There were always women with big boobs on the cover because this was pulp fiction. So a lot of the horror comic books had these women being chased by zombies that I don't know why. Every single creature is always after a woman in a state of undress in these covers. Like it's a giant ape. It's, you know, a ghost. It's a zombie. It's, you know, a serial killer. It's, you know, whatever you want, a werewolf, a vampire, but there are always these women who are like scantily clad. And there's like this, you know, guy chasing after them. And I love that, that experience of, of horror and of getting away to something that was really different from my daily experience in, in my neighborhood. And I love Pulp Fiction for that reason. I always saw, you know, whenever I was going to take the bus, all the bus drivers, they used to always be reading comic books, this tiny little comic book. And they read Westerns. The bus drivers always read, read Westerns. That's what they read. Or, or police comic books. Those were racy because the ones that I read were not racy, but those were racy. Those had naked people and people having sex and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. And so they would be, you know, at the bus stop, at the Paradero, they would be, you know, sitting next to the, the bus, which is not a nice bus, not like an American nice bus. No, like, no, it's a different kind of bus situation. And so they would be sitting there waiting for people to get on the bus and they would be reading these little erotic Western comic books. And, and that's what they did with their free time. There were no cell phones and you were not going to catch a bus driver reading a real book. They were reading these comic books. And I love Pulp Fiction for that reason, I think, because... It does serve, I think, a function and it does give some people something. Not everything in life can be literary. And when you don't have anything to eat, you don't necessarily want to read Camus and wonder about the human condition. So I really liked kind of that stuff. So that kind of vehicle of escape is something that I tried to capture in Velvet Was the Night. I've always loved comic books and graphic novels from the time I was a kid. And when I was younger, that focus on the superheroes and X-Men, that was the popular books to read. And not that I didn't like that, but it was 
kind of always looking for something else. And I think I just enjoyed the format. I enjoyed the medium. I enjoyed absorbing the drama. And I think that it was just really fun. And I think there is literary value there. And I think for the longest time, I feel like reading comics was kind of looked looked down upon, that it was more like a lowbrow. I think there is something there to that, to what you were saying, that, that escape. Looking at some of the covers for some of these Mexican horror comic books, and they're just brilliant. Like you were saying, between there's a lot of skeletons and there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of scantily clad women. And it, I just yeah. suspect that skeletons are really easy to get an anatomical model, but I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> they're just, they're of the time, what people wanted in that moment. And these horror comic books are really popular. No, they're not. The industry in Mexico of comic books really contracted and kind of died off at a certain point for several reasons. One was because the subsidies that the government gave for paper products really were reduced. And so, and, but the other reason is that imports, those superhero comic books, the X-Men, other kind of stuff took over the industry. And also Japanese comic books came in as a big force manga at a certain point in time. So the golden age of comics books is long over in Mexico. There's nothing like it used to be. Mm -hmm. I don't read comic books anymore. I, I haven't read them in many, many years. It was kind of a thing of my childhood and my adolescence There's also not the ease of comic books that I had when I was a child. There was a newsstand at every corner when I was growing up, and there were always comic books there. It was an impulse buy. There's no newsstands at every corner where I live in in Canada. I think the only ones that I sometimes see are Betty and Veronica's at the checkout line, which I will say I did read also when I was a kid. My father bought me those. They were translated imports, but my father bought me those. And I quite feel the need to reach for one of them once in a while, just out of nostalgia. <laughs> the, the small format ones, the ones that fit, fit in the racks neatly. Yep. But I know exactly the ones just, I'm, yeah. like, <laughs> I'm just not ones. the kind of person who's going to walk into a comic book shop. And they're not at bookstores easily available either, at least where I go. They're not, not there. So it's, yeah, it, I think it's just hard to find them like mm-hmm. I did in my childhood. And they were very cheap back then. It was it was an impulse yeah, buy. It was a cheap thrill, right? You you wanted to know what the skeleton was doing to the woman. So you paid your peso, right? And you got a soft drink and you sat down in a park bench and you found out. And it was was that kind of experience. And, And it's just not something that I can replicate. Yeah, love that she um she kind of like goes to the newsstand and is like, do you have the latest issue? I need it. Like I need my next <laughs> my next fix. And like you get that. And even for her, like, I mean, she didn't have money to fix her car and then barely you know able to to eat. But she was getting that next issue. Like she was into this. I am flying <laughs> and sinker. I am finding out what's happening. So what are you reading right now? But has there been anything that that you've been enjoying? Well, I do have. A column with Levi Tidar at the Washington Post that is a science fiction and fantasy column. <laughs> yeah. So we kind of have to read for that. That's not like reading for pleasure in a, in a kind of way. I mean, it is in, in one sense, but in another sense, it's like we, we're, on, we're on deadline and we're doing something. And our next column that's coming out is going to be Circus. So I've been reading a lot of Circus books and I found this old book about uh, civilization of circus people in another planet. So there's this, in the future, there's this like spaceship and it's full of like clowns and circus performers and it crash lands on a planet. And afterwards, this circus civilization develops there. It sounds wild, it's wild. I think it's from the 1970s. It's not available. I, I got it used basically because Levy, my <laughs> co-author told me about it. And I just, I had the time of my life with that thing. It was just <laughs> amazing. 
<laughs> There's so many books like that are just lost to time from, from that era and that are just amazing. And I felt if I could have my own imprint, I would, that's the kind of stuff that I would reprint. That's exactly the kind of thing that makes me happy because it's wacky, it's wild, it's just full of interesting ideas. And it was very short, which I also appreciate. Everything got thicker and thicker because of the changes in uh, book production. And we went from having ace doubles to, you know, having books the size of bricks. And there's a whole long explanation about why that happened. But I, I am basically an ace double kind of person at heart. So I read that and and I had a lot of a lot of fun with with that one. And but in terms of new in terms of new books, what have I read that is good and interesting? Well, another thing that I read for kind of for a different column, but that's coming out sooner, it was this African-inspired fantasy that's called Son of the Storm. And I don't like reading series and I don't like reading epic fantasy kind of stuff, big fantasy kind of stuff by nature. That is the stuff that I hate. Um, you know, like I, you know, some people are like the world building and I'm like, I don't care. But I actually <laughs> found like, Son of the Storm to be really kind of fun. It, it, it has so many sensory details. And I think it's the kind of book that people who like Lord of the Rings, but also people who like Game of Thrones will enjoy because it's just very thick, very thick with juicy detail. And, that, and that's coming out pretty soon if it hasn't already come out. So that, so that one was pretty exciting. And then what else have I been reading? I, I just read a lot of, but I read The Servant by Robin Maham and it's not a new book. It's an old, an old book. Mm -hmm. I just found it absolutely lovely. It's this, I don't know. I mean, it's not a noir. It's a, it's more of a, yeah, I guess it might be a noir. It's this rich guy who hires another guy to be his butler. And as they start living together, their relationship begins to change. And the guy who was the master, the rich master controlling the lower class servant starts to become the servant and the servant starts to become the master. I loved it. I love relationships with, with dysfunctional characters and dysfunctional people. And so I bought another book by the same author. And then I bought Bathhouse, which is supposed to come out, I think, soon. Uh, I want to say that's soon. Yeah. Sometime in May. Yes. Yeah, because I was on that kind of dysfunctional thriller, I suppose, narrative. But very interesting book, like I said, The Servant. And again, something that doesn't fit neatly in a certain type of category. There was this genre of movies in the 1990s that I would call the crazy personal friend. So like uh, there was one about a babysitter with Rebecca the Mornay, The Hand That Rocks the Cradle. And then there was yes, one exactly. about a single white female. Yeah, yep. like somebody close to you is going to turn out to be insane and try to dominate your life. And that's what happens in The Servant. But this is previous to that. So I just found it kind of interesting as, a, as an ancestor of this, of this narrative of, yeah, some, somebody in your, in your life close to you is nuts. Fatal attraction sort of, sort of sort of situation going on, and I bought Bathhouse because of that because I I felt yeah I was on a on a roll, and this sounded like it might be similar to it might be another type of fatal attraction of your lover is insane and trying to murder you. Yeah, but yeah, the servant really loved it. But again, it's it's not one clear thing or another, and I love that about books. I love books that leave you baffled and you don't know 
what it is and you don't know where you would classify it. And that's going to bring me back because again, I, th- I feel like that with your body of work, it's just like you were saying, you want to keep it interesting for yourself, you know, as a writer, but you're also keeping it really interesting for your readers because of the different sort of, you know, genres or worlds that you play in. So my final question to you is for people who are coming to you new, what do you, what do you want them to know about your body of work? I think I love to explore a variety of topics and issues. So if people are looking, if people are looking for an author that writes series, I'm not their author. And if people are looking for an author that gives them the exact same experience time after time, I'm also not your author, but I love storytelling as, Mm -hmm. as an art form. And you have to kind of trust a storyteller. This is about oral storytelling, you know, not necessarily written, but it applies to written too. So when my great grandmother told me a story, you know, she didn't sit me down and say, well, you know, you're going to get a story about vampires because you got a story about vampires last week. And there was something organic okay. about it. She sat down and she said, let let me think what I'm going to tell you today. Yeah. And then she would tell me, you know, about the time that uh, she stumbled into a lion in the Sierra growing up in Mexico or what it was uh, living through the revolution or the one time that, you know, a famous movie star came into the place where she was working and she got to see this famous movie star. So the stories were very different, but it was the fun in sitting down and saying, okay, tell me a story and, and seeing what she came up with. And that's what I hope I bring to the table is that I'm willing to say, sit around me and I'll tell you a story. And that if you're open enough, to listen and see what I come up with, you'll have a good time. At least I had a good time with my great grandmother all the time. And it didn't really matter what the tale was. It was the act of storytelling and of sharing. So hopefully that's the sort of thing that I bring and that people trust me enough to enjoy the journey. And that's one thing that I think we have been losing in terms of literature is our trust for the storyteller. We... (laughs) Instead of holding the hand and letting someone guide us, we have all these expectations and ideas already ahead of time. And those can block the view. You can't really enjoy something, I think, so fully as if you come honestly and openly and listen to the tale. And so I think if you do that, you'll have a good time with me. And it won't matter so much whether I ever write a Western or not, or, you know, whether I do another horror novel or not. We'll have a good time together. Yes. That is perfect. And I think that you are listening and you've read Mexican Gothic or Gods of J.P. Shadow, beautiful ones. You know, this is very much the truth. So Silvia Morano Garcia, thank you for your insight. It's been an amazing pleasure talking with you today. Velvet Was the Night is out now. Thank you very much. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. 